Well, good morning. Great to see everyone today. The fact that you're here means you survived our temperatures earlier in the week, found ways to stay warm, survived the harassment from all your family and friends who live in Florida and Texas and other places and called and asked if you were an idiot, but um, oh well. Uh, So what do you think? Is Peyton Manning going to be able to win another Super Bowl so that he can uh, face his younger brother every Thanksgiving? Will uh, Illinois ever resolve its pension and budget crises? What happens when we die? What's for lunch? If uh, physicists are correct and bumblebees are aerodynamically designed in such a way that they can't fly, why is it that they're able to fly? Uh, Who exactly is Jesus? There are questions, and there are questions. I'd like to suggest that some questions are a little bit more significant than other questions. And that questions that deal with spiritual issues, or more specifically that deal with first principles or eternal matters, are more important than those that don't. And I would further like to argue that questions around Jesus are among the most important questions we ever entertain because Jesus exists in this remarkable little subset of one. There are a number of people who have made significant contributions in the world. There are a number of people who have shaped life as we know it. There are a number of great moral reformers. And additionally, there are a number, not a large number, but there are a number of people who have claimed to be God. The intersection of those two sets, though, is only Jesus. No other great moral reformer has claimed to be God. Virtually everyone else who's claimed to be God has been institutionalized. But Jesus... Arguably the most significant person to ever live. The one who has shaped the world in more uh, positive ways than anyone else. The one who has given us the greatest ethical system of all time. The one about whom more books have been written, more songs sung, more colleges and, and hospitals dedicated. The one who has inspired more people to turn their life in a different direction. This person, the most significant person to ever live, has made the biggest claims of anyone. He has claimed to be God. He has claimed to be the Savior of the world. He's claimed to be eternal. He has claimed to be present at creation, that all of creation came through him. He claims all power and authority in heaven and on earth. He claims to hold our eternal destiny in his hand as he sits as final judge. Nobody has made bigger claims and nobody has made a bigger impact And so it seems like coming to some resolution about who Jesus is is the biggest question that is in front of us. And that's what we're looking at in this brief series uh, out of the Gospel of Luke, the series called Amazed. We're looking at the things that Christ has done early in his public ministry to make it clear that he's not simply claiming to be another Jewish rabbi another great teacher, another moral reformer. 
He makes far bigger claims than that. And last week we saw that uh, one of the things that he advertised was that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises about the Savior. He read a passage out of Isaiah and then said, today this passage has been fulfilled in your presence. In other words, I'm the one Isaiah was writing about 700 years ago. Today, we see uh, how he claims or how he demonstrates power over evil. It comes in Luke uh, chapter 4, beginning with verse 31. Uh, I'm going to read that now. You can follow along with me if you would like. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 31. Then he, referring to Jesus, then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon and impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. So here's the context. Jesus leaves Nazareth where his claims... Uh, and teaching almost got him killed, and he goes to Capernaum, another village in Galilee, northern Israel. And he will set up home base there, and that will be home base for him, really, for the rest of his public ministry until he begins his march towards Jerusalem, which will end in his uh, crucifixion on the cross. He is going to be based out of Capernaum. And on the Sabbath, which, again, is Saturday at this point, The early church will change the specific day of worship. They will change the day that gets set aside in uh, recognition that everything changed with Jesus. He was the pivot point of history. He was the fulfillment of the prophecies. He was the end of the sacrificial system. He completed the law. He was greater than Moses. Everything pivots around Jesus. And so in honor of his life and resurrection... The, the, the day of worship will move from, from the Sabbath, Saturday, to Sunday. But at this point, it's still Saturday. And so on Saturday, he goes into the synagogue, as is his habit, and he teaches. And the words that he gives, the message that he brings, amazes the people. They're astonished at what he says. Now, some of this is um, <laughs> because... Uh, the bar was set quite low when it came to preaching. We have, you know, sermons that they were preaching at the time of Jesus, and they were um, boring, right? I mean, they were, they were bad. Uh, most of the Jewish teachers would make very technical arguments. They would cite lots and lots and lots of sources. Their footnotes had footnotes, and this could go on for a long time. And, and the points that they were interested in were just generally not all that interesting. Uh, they, they, they were well-intentioned, but what they were trying to do is, 
is to create a buffer around the law. So they would look at the law, the Decalogue, right, what Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments and other things, and they would say, okay, this is what God said we can't do, so we're now going to build a huge buffer zone around this and say, you can't do any, you can't even get close to this. And they would define the law at for hundreds of pages. So one of the commandments is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. On six days you will work, right? This is the Sabbath is to be holy. Don't work on the Sabbath. So they would then say, okay, so what is work? And then they would start to define work. And then they'd get to the question, okay, is walking work? How far can you walk on the Sabbath? What do you do if you've walked that far and you're, you're not where you want to go? Do you stay there? How long do you have to stay there? Right? What if, can you carry something when you're walking? Well, what if it's not being carried in your hands? What if it's in a coat pocket? What can you carry in a coat pocket? What if you carry something in your coat pocket more than you're supposed to carry? What if you didn't know that you were carrying it? Does the pocket lint in your pocket count as what you can or cannot carry? Right, you're just like, please, just shoot me. I don't care about any of this stuff. And they would go on ad nauseum about these regulations. So Jesus comes in and says, as you've heard them say this, I say this. Right? And he tells stories, and the things that he's talking about matter. And, of course, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's full of love and power and holiness. And he's meek and yet makes these audacious claims. He's shocking. He's gracious. Right? There's nobody like Jesus. And so it's not just that the bar was set low, but the bar was set pretty low. The people are astonished at Christ and what he's saying. And on this day in Capernaum, he's teaching and they're amazed, and then he has an encounter with evil. I'm reading verse 33. It says, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. Now let me just pause and acknowledge that some of you are having a little existential crisis here. You're thinking, oh my goodness, I didn't see this coming. It's the 21st century, this guy looks like he's clothed and in his right mind, and we're about to have a conversation about demons uh, it's not the dark ages, this is the era of enlightenment and science. I didn't see this coming. Well, uh, it's coming. Uh, it, I understand how you feel, but it's impossible to read through the Gospels without coming to numerous instances in which Christ encounters demons. And so I want to go right after it right away. Um, I do remember... My, my feeling of sort of horror and embarrassment when this topic was sort of thrown back at me 30 years ago, more than that even. Uh, I was in John McGeehee's basement. It was probably 1978. I had just come to faith in Christ. And I was sharing my faith with John and trying to persuade him that he ought to follow me in being a Christ follower. And his response was to say, I cannot go there, right? 
I've read the Gospels. There's a demon in every paragraph. Every time somebody gets a cold, they're trying to cast a demon out of him. I believe in science, not superstition. Good luck with, uh, with your new venture. And I remember when he started talking about demons going, oh, right, demons. I never got that one worked out. Um, I've shared my story before. It took me a long time to come to faith. After I heard the message, I sort of was intrigued by it, couldn't necessarily believe it, but couldn't walk away from it. And so for a long time, I'm drawn to Christians, I'm going to Bible studies, I'm asking questions, uh, I'm trying to pray, I'm, at some point I'm trying to believe, but I just don't feel like I do believe and I don't know what to do about that. So I just am circling for a couple years before I realize I, I believe. Right? It was just a sense in which I believe there is a God, I believe that I'm a sinner. I, I not only can't keep God's standards, I can't keep my own standards. Uh, I believe that Jesus is unique. There's no one like him. And no one else is stepping up to die for me and save me. I, I'm not going to get a better offer. So I believe, and I came to faith. I stepped over the line, I repented, I, I was baptized. I got into a small group, and I started to run down that path. Now, I didn't have all my questions answered at this point. There were still things that, that confused me. There were still things I didn't like, and there still are. But um, I sort of forgot about them for a while, and then over the course of the next six to nine months, 12 months, as I'm interacting uh, with people, I would be reminded of things like, oh, yeah, Demons, yeah, I uh, don't like that. And um, so I get that you may be in that camp. Uh, I actually think it's probably easier to believe in the spiritual realm today than it was in 1978. Uh, first of all, I, I think it, it's the case that more people believe in the spiritual realm today. I looked up, 79% of Americans say they believe in demons and 60-some percent say they believe in Satan. I think those numbers are shockingly high. Uh, I think people have moved in that direction for a few reasons. One is because modernity has played out a bit more. And I think most of us now realize that uh, technology is wonderful. But it's not going to fix our heart. And science is... Is a, is a blessing and is important and is, I mean, we, we are, we need science. But there are a whole bunch of questions science will never be able to answer. And a life that is grounded in science is a very thin life. And additionally, the world has gotten smaller and we have come to understand, those of us who live in the West, that with the exception of the sort of communist state, those of us in the West are the only ones that believe you could be an educated person and not have a, an awareness, not be educated about spiritual matters. And so the world got a little bit bigger, and there are things that we just sort of have moved towards being more spiritual. 
And so belief in spiritual beings is more common today than it was 30 years ago. But you may blanch at any topic that's, that includes demons. I get that. Let me, let me lay out for you the options that you have. When it comes to evil, right, there's, there are choices. There is a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, okay, at the, at the far left side of the spectrum, are those who say evil does not exist. There is no such thing as evil. There is no such thing as, as right and wrong. There, there is no such thing as good and bad. These are social constructs that we have generally agreed upon, but they're not absolutes. They can't be because there are no moral absolutes. We're alone in the universe. There are physical absolutes. There are physical standards, but there are no moral standards because there is no such thing as morality. Right? It's, it, there is no God there is no right or wrong. We just agree on the way we're going to try and get along. This is the argument advanced by Nietzsche, the German philosopher, God is dead guy. Uh, he's, he said, good and evil don't exist, only power. The only thing that matters is power. And if you've got power, you get to decide what's right and wrong. This is a view that, that many people are sympathetic to. If you listen carefully, you will almost never hear a news journalist call something evil. So a, someone goes into a kindergarten classroom with a gun and, and, and kills a dozen six-year-olds. They'll be described as a suspect, as a shooter, as a gunman. They will not be described as evil. Right? They, they, might be, they might or might not be described as a murderer. Almost never will you hear them described as being evil. The situation is tragic. It's horrible. But it's not evil. And, and the reason that they're not going to say that it's evil is because there is a segment of society that would say, you know, you can't go there because of where there is going to take you. As soon as you say something is evil then you are, you are deferring to some standard that we're not going to acknowledge. So you've got that camp. A little bit to the right of that camp, you've got the people that say, evil exists, but don't ask me to explain it very carefully, because I really can't. Right? I, I, it's a sort of a generic spirituality. I know it when I see it, but I don't really know where it comes from, and I'm not necessarily willing to say that evil as an entity exists. There's damaged good. Things go wrong. And some of those things I would be willing to call evil. But I don't really know how it comes about. Okay? So I agree that, that uh, there is an innate sense of evil that we have. I think Paul writes about that in Romans 1. But this this understanding of evil, I think, is very uh, tepid. It's, it's, it's not biblical evil. So then there's a third position, and this third position says, evil exists, but demons do not. This is the camp that I moved into uh, for a while when I first came to faith. And, and it's a difficult camp to defend. My own views were radically inconsistent, because I would argue 
that angels existed, after all, right? Um, an angel had appeared to Mary and told her she was going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And there were angels there when Jesus was born, talking to the shepherds at night. So, and wow, God is supernatural. So I'm affirming a supernatural, but I'm not willing to affirm, to affirm supernatural evil. I just, it was just, I just didn't want to talk about it. It was, again, it was, um, seemed like the dark ages. And it was a little embarrassing. And so I just generally ignored uh, all those conversations. And then there's um, the next camp, which says, evil exists as do demons and angels. This would be the, the camp I'm in now. This would be the right camp. Um, and, and it's, I would argue, it's the classic uh, orthodox uh, teaching of the church. It differs from the next over. Evil exists, as do demons and angels, in that uh, one I would describe as more of an evangelical perspective. The other, the, the one on the far end, would be the classic Pentecostal view. And the difference here is that with the classic Pentecostal view, you are more inclined to see uh, spiritual dynamics in play. Uh, spiritual evil, you know, you would see uh, things going wrong, you would be more likely to attribute to supernatural forces at play. Evangelicals, the church generally has, has said, when it comes to evil, right, when it comes to demons, you just don't see a whole lot in the Bible except around Jesus. There's not a lot in the Old Testament and there's some talk in the rest of the New Testament. But where we really see this happening is in the Gospels. And the reason is because it was a unique moment. Jesus, God was walking on earth. He was bringing the kingdom of God into enemy territory. And there were lots of encounters. And, and demons had no choice but to sort of respond to his invasion. So... There's a, there's, a, there's a difference between these two camps. Um, and, of course, there's also the, what I'll call the lunatic fringe, uh, which is usually what ends up on TV because it makes for great TV. And that is, you know, that your car won't start. There's a demon in it. The garbage disposal isn't working. There's a demon in it, right? There's a demon everywhere. These are the guys that my fraternity brothers would always come and say, hey, Woodruff, one of your friends is on TV. Look, he's going to cast a demon out of a vacuum cleaner. you got to see this. And... Um, right. So there is the lunatic fringe, but then there are these other positions. I started, I think, I didn't think much about it, but before coming to faith, I was probably in the second camp. And then I moved into the third camp, and then after a few years, I moved into the, the fourth camp. I'm not happy about it. I mean, I'm not happy to affirm that there is personal evil, that Satan exists and that we're in a spiritual battle. But I moved there for a, for a variety of reasons. First of all, um, the reports of people I respect. There's a lot of reports about demons. I'm skeptical of much of it. But I have friends, either people generally who grew up in Africa, South America, Central America, uh, or who went there as missionaries who would just say it's different. And the explanation as to why it's different would be, um, wow, if you were 
an enemy in the West, if you were a spiritual uh, force of evil in the West, you probably could do your best work if people didn't know you existed. So don't, don't play that card if you don't have to. Uh, but people I respect telling me stories of their own experiences and things that I've read. Interestingly, many people know the book, uh, The Road Less Traveled, written by uh, Scott Peck, a psychiatrist. When I read that book in the 80s, I almost tried to find his phone number so I could call him and say, I don't know whether you've come to faith in Christ yet or not, but you are so close, right? You need to step over the line. Well, Peck, I don't know where where his spiritual journey took him. He died a few years ago, but one of his subsequent books was called People of the Lie. And he said that as a psychiatrist, he had gone to some uh, events where people were trying to cast demons out of people. And he says, I would listen to these people and say, they're simply mentally ill, right? I mean, I, <laughs> the, the diagnosis here is schizophrenia or paranoia or something. But this person, I mean, I deal with these people all the time. But he said, I've also been in hospitals and in counseling sessions with other people where they're trying to treat somebody as mentally ill, where I'd go, this is not a mental illness. Something evil is going on here. There's something going on in this room. So I'm skeptical of many claims that are made, but not all of them. Additionally, my own experience, which is very limited when it comes to sort of face-to-face evil, I think 99% of the problems I have in life, uh, I am responsible for by myself. Uh, Thank you very much. I'd love to say the devil made me do it. Uh, you know, the devil doesn't need much help. Uh, I, I go into the wrong places on my own. Um, that's my experience, but there are times when temptation feels remarkably personal or when I feel like I'm in the presence of evil. And it doesn't happen often, but there are times when you say, okay, something is going on here that... Um, that feels very dark and cold and evil, and uh, that would be my experience. So those two factors moved me, but more significantly, I mean, the real reason that I moved into that camp is because I don't know how to read the Gospels and not end up in that camp. I don't know, I don't know how you read uh, about Jesus and who he is and take evil out of the equation. Some people will say, look, the evil that is being portrayed here is, is not really supernatural evil. The, the demons are just a metaphor for uh, systemic corruption and oppression. And, and the, the, the symptoms that are being described here is not a demon. It's, it's just it's epilepsy or it's a mental illness. But that sure is not the way it reads. And so I don't know how to make sense of the text and read it any other way. The Bible presents evil uh, as being real and personal. Evil has a name. Fifty-two times, uh, evil is called Satan. Thirty-five times, evil is referred to uh, as the devil. The devil is also referred to as the 
in other passages as the prince of darkness, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, the evil one, a roaring lion, an ancient serpent. Demons are mentioned in 19 of uh, 27 New Testament books. In Jude 6 and 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, we're given a background and we're told that, uh, that God created everything and he created angelic beings. And uh, one of those angelic beings, the, one of the highest of the angelic beings, rebelled and took with him uh, a third of the other angels. And they were cast out of heaven and they uh, are real and they, they work against us and they try to block us from having faith and they try to block us uh, in the work of the church and they, they tempt us. And that's uh, the portrayal that we get in the Bible. Now, it's significant to realize that the portrayal of evil that's found in, the, in Scripture is of, uh, is, is of uh, an evil spirit that is powerful but limited. Right? Satan is never described as being God's counterpart. Satan is a creature, not a creator. He's not everywhere. I mean, one of the reasons that it would be wrong to say the devil made me do it is because the devil can't be everywhere. It's unlikely that uh, you or I are on the devil's radar. Now, maybe one of the devil's lieutenants would be around leading us astray. But uh, one of the reasons it's wrong to say the devil made me do it is because the devil can't make us do anything. We continue to have free will. But um, the devil can uh, mislead us. He has great power. The greater the power for good, the greater the power for evil. We've looked at this with other things, nuclear power, sex, right? The greater the power something has for good. The, the smarter, more dynamic, charismatic a leader is, the greater the potential for good, the greater the potential for evil. And we see that uh, with Satan and so um, we need to be aware of that. And, and when it comes to evil, uh, as your pastor, I would, I would throw out some very specific suggestions to you. I would say, first of all, just on this whole topic, avoid the extremes. As C.S. Lewis uh, writes, the, the, there are two equal and opposite errors into which the race uh, could fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Don't ignore them, but don't suspect they're behind every tree and under every rock. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, right? I mean, go with what is more likely than what is less likely. Second, avoid the occult. Stay away from Ouija boards and tarot cards and voodoo dolls and palm reading and seances and give absolutely no credibility to your horoscope. Most of this stuff is sheer bunk. It's just a sham. It's like the circus sideshow. You pay money to watch the woman turn from a woman to a gorilla. It happens every five minutes, right? It is, there's nothing to it. It's a complete hoax, but not all of it. And just like you want to stay out of an alley at 2 o'clock in the morning, you want to stay as far away from this stuff as you can. 
Third, you need to realize that we're in a fight. Read Ephesians 6. Read 1, Timothy, or 1 Peter chapter 3 that says we have an enemy that is prowling around like a lion, right? Looking for someone to devour. We have an enemy that doesn't sleep. We need to realize that we are in a battle. We need to major on God, not Satan, right? To focus on Christ, not on evil. To, to make him uh, the one that we think about, not our enemy. Five, we pray for protection. When I suspect I'm in the presence of evil, right, three or four times a year I'll go, mm, something feels odd, dark, wicked about what's going on here. I, I pray, right? That is my... I'm not going to try and stand in my own power. I confess sin. I claim the name of Jesus, right? And I say, any any spirit here that does not love and serve Jesus, go, right? And uh, I pray against Satan, his, his, uh, his forces, his effects, his work. I pray for my family. I just hide behind Jesus in prayer. Six, move forward with respect for the enemy but not fear. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more in just a second with the great hymn that we're going to sing where I think Martin Luther nails it. And then uh, finally, be joyful. Um, Many people walk around as if the battle is, as if the war is still to be be decided. No. Uh, Satan is mortally wounded. We, we do not need to cower in fear. There are battles that we can fight and lose. But, but God wins. Good wins. Jesus is already victorious. The, the mop-up efforts continue to go on, but we do not have to cower in fear. We can be joyful because good and God will ultimately triumph. Okay, so now, With all of that said, I want to take you back and simply put this little coda on everything. Luke writes about this power encounter that Jesus has with the demon, not so that we can get a whole sermon on uh, spiritual warfare. The people back then didn't need to be convinced that evil existed. They believed that evil existed. They needed to be persuaded that God was more powerful than evil that Jesus was God and could defeat evil. That's why Luke shares this story. Do not be fascinated or amazed with demons and evil. This is here for us to be amazed at who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies. He has power over evil. We're going to see his power over sickness and death And nature, he is the one we should be focused on. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we ask for your um, protection over us. We acknowledge that there is more going on around us than we can always see. And that we often misunderstand what's going on. Help us to be wise. Help us to uh, be aware of the battle that 
that rages around us, but to focus on you, to move forward with uh, an awareness of an enemy and our need for spiritual armor and protection, but with joy and with a focus on you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.